Hello, I'm Joe Pavia, and thanks for listening to my podcast, Station to Station. The podcast revisits old radio interviews I conducted and news stories I was assigned to. You can find blogs, photos, and other stories on my website, joepavia.com. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with playwright, artist, and spiritual director, Celia McBride. Test, 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 chat, one, two, check, check. Test, one, one, check, one, one. Coming down in three, two, one. I first spoke to Celia in 2002 after seeing her one-act play Walk Right Up. It was performed at the Studio Theatre at the Stratford Festival in Stratford, Ontario. It was the festival's newest venue that year. Celia McBride was the only female playwright to have her one-act play performed at the inaugural season. Walk Right Up tells the story of the three adult children from the fictional Ruskin family who need to make decisions about caring for their elderly parents. In that 2002 interview with Celia, she explained that she was inspired to write the play after an experience in a nursing home. I was very inspired by what it's like taking care of elderly people mm-hmm. and also how uh, families seem to deal with parents in nursing homes. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's really hard um, for adult children to come and visit their parents in nursing homes because it's not always the, the most lovely environment. Mm-hmm. and. Um, so they don't always come, and uh, it's a very sort of lonely existence. That production led to a number of others across Canada, the U.S., and around the world. When I caught up with Celia 17 years later, she was in the process of writing her spiritual memoir, my interview with Celia McBride. Your life has taken an interesting journey in where mm-hmm. you are now at the point where you are writing a memoir, a spiritual memoir. Uh, Was spirituality part of your life journey, or is it something that you experienced later? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the things writing the memoir has given me the opportunity to do is to look back on my life and see where the spiritual signposts, if you will, popped up. So if I began sort of from the beginning and which I did in the memoir and it's 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 much more condensed. I'm on the third draft right now. I've been writing it for 3 years. But the third the first draft was about okay, what what do I consider to be a spiritual experience and when did they start in my life? And it actually took me right back to some really early childhood stuff where I I became conscious of something other than myself. And, you know, as, as, as human beings, as we come into consciousness, you know, that question of who am I and what am I doing here and what the heck is this all about? happened to me pretty early on. So I suppose it wasn't until my late 20s when I really started to develop develop intentional spiritual practices, meditation, yoga, prayer, um, that I could sort of frame my life as a spiritual journey. But when I did the 
the search backwards from there, I could see that I had always been a seeker. I had always been someone who had an experience of something beyond my human self. And so it really has been, you know, a lifetime and who knows about reincarnation, but maybe lifetimes of this path of self-discovery and self-realization. Did that path of self-discovery enter your work? And I'm specifically talking about some of the, the theater that you've done and the, and the plays that you've written. Is that a question that you were searching through that or, or trying to find answers through those? Absolutely. And, you know, if I were to kind of go through the plays that I've written right from the very beginning uh, and to the last thing that I really did, which was the feature film Last Out for Miles in 2012, produced in 2015, I, there, you will see, I think, if you're looking for it, that, that seeking, that question, you know, what, what, what's going on underneath our human experience? And I, I think I did a lot of sort of imbuing my characters with those questions as well as put them in the context of the deeper questions of who we are and, and, and how we are. Well, was it easier writing words for actors or uh, speaking words for spirituality to a, a greater source? Or were you doing it at the same time? I, I was probably doing it at the same time. It was great to have what I loved about being a playwright and a screenwriter is that I can actually give what I think and what I feel and the questions that I have and the, and the things that I don't think and feel, but I know that others do, I could give them to, to characters to wrestle with the questions or spout their beliefs. And I could, I could sort of explore what I wanted to explore through the voice of other people that were kind of speaking on either on my behalf or on behalf of others. And I really, I really do love that and, and miss that about writing characters and dialogue. Uh, now you are leading spiritual workshops and there's been a, a lot of great reviews on your website from people who have attended the workshops. And can you give an example of what type of lessons occur at your workshop um, that would lead them with the satisfaction at the end? Yeah, thanks. I, I just led a workshop. I was back in Whitehorse, which is my hometown. So I led a retreat, and one of the retreats that I lead often is Being Enough. It's called Being Enough, and it really focuses on, you know, if I feel inadequate as a person, if I am always striving to become something, there's an, there's an edge of suffering to that. And so my 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 proposal or my my experience is this deep interconnection that we as humans have to all things and and if i if i am deeply interconnected to all things then isn't that enough in itself and how can i keep identifying with that rather than my finite self or my insecure self or my not enough self and 
what I have found is the response from people is almost like a a relief, you know, that first of all, it's okay to be, it's okay to be my not enough feeling human self. And wow, what happens if I open my mind to a bigger picture of who I am and what I'm doing here? Just this last time around, uh, there was there was a woman who, you know, I think she was living with a, a very loud and unhappy voice in her head, you know, that was constantly criticizing her and constantly putting her down and, you know, almost like beating her up with a measuring stick. And when I talk about disidentifying from that voice and and identifying with a deeper sense of who we are there comes an opportunity to start to see or witness that voice rather than get hooked by it so she just had a little shift into wow okay i actually have this voice in my head but i'm not what this voice is telling me. I don't have to actually buy into this voice. I don't have to believe it. And there was a sense of simplicity to this idea that she could return to a deeper authentic self that was free and clear of that angry, inadequate critical voice. And I remember her saying, you know, it's so simple and it's so practical. I I can just return to a deeper sense of who I am and and let go or practice letting go of this other inner critic. And she just seems really relieved to know that there wasn't anything you know, she didn't have to spend the next 20 years meditating on a cushion. Every day she could mm-hmm. practice disidentifying from that voice and, and dropping into a deeper sense of herself whenever she remembered to do it. Wow. That's great. Yeah, That's great. it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that inner critic, it's something you don't know when it starts, but it kind of hangs around there until you reach your point where you say, you know, I've had enough. How do I get help getting rid of it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think many of us live with it and the getting rid of it, you know, I haven't been so successful at that. I've been more successful at just kind of understanding that it's a part of me and the learning not to, to listen or buy in and then it gets quiet, you know, and, and if it gets loud, I can, I can do the same thing, which is, yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing. Not so interested in the information you have for me today. So Maybe go sit at the back of the bus where you belong. How long does a retreat that you lead last? Well, it depends. I, I've i done five-day retreats, and I've done one-day retreats, and the one in Whitehorse I did was just an afternoon. So it depends on the venue, and it depends on um, where I'm at, and what I have to offer, but I love, I love the longer ones because it gives time to integrate the work. And then the one day retreats are also beautiful. It's amazing what can happen in a day. 
and even the one in Whitehorse, which was four hours, you know, it was just enough. It was mm-hmm. kind of an opportunity for people to come away from the world, go into a deeper sense of themselves, and then, you know, leave feeling refreshed. So it depends. So is playwriting still happening in your life, or have you shelved that part? Well, it's not happening currently. I, I still have the mind of a playwright, so I, I come up with ideas quite often, I or I meet characters or people, and I think, oh my gosh, this is a person that needs to be in a play, or, you know, a scenario will strike me, and I'll think, oh, that is a play. And I have written a couple of screenplays since I've, you know, quote-unquote, retired from from playwriting or showbiz, but I, I'm not actually, I'm not doing any playwriting other than what feels like dial, well, what is dialogue in my memoir. And it's interesting because when I've given it to people to read and give me editorial feedback, I very often get, your dialogue is amazing. <laughs> and I think, well, yep, that's 20 years of playwriting for you. So it, it's not actually happening in in that form, but it's still who I am on mm-hmm. on a certain level. Where does that amazing dialogue come from? Is it dialogue that you've heard? Is it a combination of conversations? Uh, how, do, how does that work in the mind of a playwright? Well, it is, I, do, I think it does come from, deep listening and tuning into how people express themselves and an intuitive sense of character, an intuitive sense of, of who someone is and, and maybe what's underneath who they are presenting themselves to be. Uh, you know, playwright has a, a, a deeper insight into perhaps the psyche of, of, of a person who might just be appearing as someone on a surface level. So, you know, it's interesting being a spiritual director now, the the primary quality of a spiritual director is the ability to deeply listen. And so I think I've always had that ability. And it does, you know, when I was writing characters, it would come from, both kind of this this intuitive place that I'm talking about, really listening to the way that people talk and how people talk and what they're saying and what they're not saying. And then, you know, that that translates now into the memoir, which is, you know, I'm not making up dialogue because it's, you know, it is a memoir, but I'm remembering very clearly conversations and trying to trying to write them as they were, as they took place. And and I suppose being able to do that and then getting the editorial feedback, which is the dialogue is really good, is that I'm not, I, I'm being true to how people speak. When, um, when you look back at the experience of Stratford, how does it compare to what you would encounter in your theater journey? Oh my gosh, it was such a high. You know, it was a career high and it happened really early. I so I graduated from the National Theater School in 95 
I had my my first kind of peak experience in 98, which was when an Irish company produced one of my plays in Waterford, Ireland. And then I got a commission after that. But Stratford, the, the Stratford Commission happened in 2001. So, you know, I was six years out of theater school. It felt, Stratford, you know, was kind of like the pinnacle Canadian theater experience. And it just felt like such an honor. I was so blown away that it was happening to me. And, you know, it was challenging. Like, it was challenging to be the only female playwright in the inaugural season of the studio theater. I think there were 11 shows produced that year and I was the only woman. And I was also challenged by working with director and dramaturg, dramaturgs um, who, you know, they challenged me in a way that was really positive and I felt uh, deepened my work. Um, but being a playwright is always about that, trying to find that balance between allowing ourselves to be challenged and standing our ground. And so that was, you know, I was working with that balance all the time. And then, you know, came the great disappointment at the end of this fantastic experience of having my play coupled with Timothy Finley's play and you know, feeling like um, I'd had a bit of a hit with, you know, Stratford saying that was it. And they, they weren't interested in kind of the next thing and not publishing the work. So it was kind of this peak experience followed by what felt like a bit of a letdown, you know, that I wanted it to continue kind of building and going upward. And it felt like it just kind of faded away. So looking back on it, I just feel a lot of gratitude for the opportunity to have been produced by that institution, you know, that great Canadian institution to have, you know, my little name on a little plaque in the studio theater feels pretty good. And, you know, it just feels like a, a, a wonderful kind of fairy tale in 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 my career that I'm so thankful that I got to I got to do that. Quite a powerful story though. Mm. Uh, about a family and you know caring for an elder and the, the the conflict that happens between the the siblings and then and I still have this vivid memory of seeing it with Paul Souls on stage in mm. a bed mm. uh, having suffered a stroke and then at the end when all the actors are coming for the curtain call he gets up out of bed and yeah. is walking yeah. and functioning normally with no mobility issues. Yeah. Uh, whoa. Yeah. True. You know, maybe he should have done the curtain call in the wheelchair. That's that's a really interesting <laughs> point. Yeah, it was very powerful. And actually, you know, I just remembered when you said that, that it did lead to another production in the States. There was somebody who had a, a theater company in the States who saw it at Stratford, and they ended up producing it in uh, in Pennsylvania, which was a little bit of a thrill. But I, it, the amazing thing about that is that I still that that theme of of caring for the elderly and accompanying the elderly 
is a theme that has run throughout my life. I, I provide spiritual care in a long-term care facility today, and that play grew out of my work providing care in a, a seniors residence in Montreal. So that work has never left me, and I, I, it's amazing to me that I wrote that play about this relationship between adult siblings and parents who can no longer look after themselves because I'm continuing to live that story and see that happen in so many people's lives where they just hit the point where their parents need help and they're faced with, God, do I put my mother in a home? She doesn't want to go, but I can't look after her. And it's, it's just so, you know, that was how many years ago? 17, 18 years ago. And it's just more pertinent than ever. So it's amazing that, you know, that it continues to be such a, a reality for so many people. It was, uh, so it was performed in Pennsylvania. Did it uh, see any other performances after that? It never did, you know, and uh, that always felt like a bit of a surprise to me as well, because I thought, God, this is such a, this is such an important theme. People really responded well to it, but it just never, you know, it never had the legs that I, that I thought it would have and that many others thought it would have. And that will always, you know, in terms of the the theater world, that was a mystery I could never crack, you know, why some plays hit, and why some plays don't, even though they seem... I remember my play in Ireland. One of the actors said to me, just before opening night, he looked at me with wide eyes and he said, I think we're all going to be stars. You know, he just... The, the work was so powerful. Everyone felt incredibly uplifted by it. It, it felt really pertinent to what was happening in the world. And, um, you know, we got a couple of negative reviews, a couple of raves, and the the theater companies that Red Kettle thought would pick it up didn't. And, you know, just never know why these things happen or don't happen. What was the name of that play and what was it about? That was called Choke My Heart. And it was about, it was a surreal play about two brothers who find two giant artichokes growing in their front yard and the plays about them trying to understand what these, what these creatures uh, are. And they turn out to be sort of a metaphor for the buried family secrets. And it was, you know, incest was a theme and Ireland just, they, they couldn't handle it. It was just too close to the bone, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But is a production like that, if you were to say, put it on in Canada or in the U.S. or I, I'm not sure if you did, but it, you know, if so, what would that reaction have been? Do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I that that idea that it was too close to the Irish bone was presented to me by by some people, but you know, incest is a reality in North America too, so. You know, I mean, I also need to take some responsibility, like maybe the play wasn't um, in as good a shape as we all thought it was. But it, I think anything that sort of challenges the the unspoken taboos is is not easy to to watch some, you know, it's hard to go to the theater and be 
challenged by the darkness. I always try to bring people into the light, but, you know, I, I sometimes take them through the darkness maybe longer than they want to be there. So it just wasn't um, wasn't the time. But who determines if a play is supposed to be where it is supposed to be? I guess the people that have the that that have the money and the the venues, you know, the the companies that are trying to put bums in seats because they have to survive. So I I there were, you know, a couple of companies that we thought we were going to tour to in Ireland and they just when they saw um the negative reviews they got scared and and decided not to take us on um you know the positive reviews weren't enough to convince them so i think the people who are looking at the fiscal reality are the ones that get to make the decisions most of the time you mentioned a couple of themes that you tackled in in your time as a playwright I counted 28 stage plays you wrote from 1993 to 2011. What are the, some of the other themes that you looked at? Yeah, some of the other themes, you know, I, I, I felt, I always felt like I was writing the same play over and over again. And I heard Oscar Wilde say that as well. And I thought, okay, phew, I'm in good company. I always felt like I was writing about, you know, I talked a little bit about moving from the darkness into the light. So some kind of, of journey that you know the protagonist takes where either they're 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 down and they move through to come into some state of up or they're they're asleep to themselves in some way like in walk right up it was really you know Ella she just didn't think she had the capacity to look after her parents and then she realized that she exactly did have that capacity and last stop for miles was you know which i turned into the feature film it's really about a a a woman who you know is is clouded by her darkest fears and and discovers that there's hope and I think probably the majority of my my themes are are along those lines of of self realization or coming to some kind of awareness of oneself, either in a in a in a more healing capacity or a, an awakened capacity. So yeah, that that tends to be I, that tends to be the primary theme of course there are others in there that are you know there's comedies and um, there's some silly stuff and it's not always that meaningful but yeah there's quite a there's quite a number there I I I really went all over the map the one question I was going to ask you was about uh, how I noticed just in my research that in 2005 the way I worded it you left for Whitehorse Yukon uh, whether you were the co-artistic director of Sour Bride Theatre. But I guess I should reward that. You returned to Yukon mm-hmm. in, in 2005. My question is then, what led you back to Yukon? Yeah, I did. I did. I returned to the place of my, my birth, 
Well, I'd always, I had gone back. So we left when I was seven. I went back for my gap year between high school and university on my own. I went back for a summer in my 20s. And then after theater school, I ran into the artistic director of Nakai Theater in Whitehorse, which is the regional theater there. And he and I had been at theater school together and he said, God, you know, you're from the Yukon and I'm AD up there. We should really, you know, collaborate on something. So he brought me up in 2003 to do some directing and some dramaturgy for the local playwrights. And then at that time he invited me to come back as playwright in residence. He said, why don't you apply for a Canada Council grant? We'll get you back up here for a longer period of time. And at that time, I'd left I'd left Montreal. I was kind of doing Stratford and Toronto theater, and things were going very well. And I didn't want to go back to the Yukon, but, you know, a Canada Council grant takes three months to write and four months to hear. And then by that time... Things, I think both Stratford and Factory Theatre decided not to produce my plays. Um, the house I was living in, Port Hope, was going to be sold. And I thought Whitehorse was looking pretty good. Oh, and I got the Canada Council grant. So I went back to the Yukon to be playwright in residence at Nakai Theatre. And then, you know, this theatre partner slash friend of mine, Moira Sauer, and I started to think about how we could work together and start our own company and so we put our names together and became the Sour Brides. Oh, excellent. excellent. So what did you produce? We The first play we did was a play written by other people called Matt and Ben, which was about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and it's a, but played by two women. So we thought, oh, let's do that. <laughs> so it's about how they didn't actually really write Goodwill Hunting, that the script falls from the sky because they're not smart enough to write it. Oh. And uh, <laughs> it was a huge hit. We had so much fun doing it. I played Ben Affleck and um, she played, Moira played Matt Damon. And then we produced, we did another piece by Claudia Day, very well-known Canadian playwright called Trout Stanley. And we were moving toward producing one of my plays. So we produced So Many Doors. And we toured it across the country and the play was published. So it was, you know, we really spent a lot of time building that play, building our tour and, you know, making sure the play would um, have more of a life than, than just our company. So that was that was a thrill, a five or six year thrill. And then it just... We did a couple of other things after that, but we were both moving in different directions and sort of felt like we'd given it our all. Mm-hmm. And you toured where? Like mostly out west or northern Canada? Actually, we toured mostly in Ontario. We we toured uh, Ontario, uh, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and the NWT. We kind of skipped okay. the – oh, and Vancouver. So we skipped Manitoba, Saskatchewan. So how does that work? Like you, you would rent uh, some theater space and. Uh... No, we got, we actually got on what, what's called one night stands, like a touring uh, one night stand with established theaters that book out of town shows. 
So, you know, that's, you know, we spent quite a lot of time learning how to, how to get booked and then doing all the steps toward getting booked. And so it was, it was brilliant. Like it was really such a learning experience of, about how to tour theater in Canada and uh, how to get paid for it and how to play in different size venues every time you're moving. And it was, yeah, we learned so much. It was, it was a great time. Celia, so, those are the, all the questions that I had. Um, is there anything else that, that you wanted to mention you wanted to talk about? Oh, it's just so great to to go back and, and talk about my theater career. I, I just loved being a theater artist, and it's so nice to, to be recognized and to have a, a conversation about it. Joe, I thank you so much. That is Celia McBride. I posted the 2002 interview I did with Celia where we speak exclusively about Walk Right Up. It's posted on my website. You can read more about Celia McBride from her artistic work to her work as spiritual director. Her website is celiamcbride.com. Thanks for listening to Station to Station. If you like the podcast, hit like on iTunes or drop me a line on my website, joepavia.com. Check out other podcasts, blogs, and photos that are posted to the site, or you can listen to them on iTunes or SoundCloud. Subscriptions on iTunes and SoundCloud are free, and if you follow the site, you'll receive instant notification via email of a new post. You can sign up at the bottom of the homepage. That's all. We'll see you on the next podcast.